This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I will say this about investing. Everything you do is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. Yeah, this one's a bit different. It is part of our expert investor series, so very keen to crack into this one. But it's in an area that we haven't really spoken about before, and and that is uh, private equity and, and venture capital. So pretty keen to welcome Paul Wilson to the show. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. So Paul has had extensive experience in private equity investment as a director of Champ Private Equity in Sydney and New York, MetLife in London, and as executive director at uh, Lachlan Murdoch's media-focused investment group, Illyria. Paul is also co-founder and partner of Bailador, specialist investor in IT and media, as well as director of SiteMinder. Straker Translations, Stackler, the Rajasthan Royals IPL Cricket Franchise and ASX listed Vita Group Limited. Quite a resume there, Paul. <laughs> oh, thanks, Bryce. So, Paul, before we crack into the meat of the episode, we like to play a bit of a game, overrated, underrated. We'll throw a few different sort of asset types at you and maybe some current events and we want to get your opinion on whether you think it's overrated or underrated and perhaps why. Ready to play? Ready to go. So, overrated or underrated, the ASX 200. Well, I will lead off by saying I don't usually make predictions specifically outside of my area of expertise of tech, but uh, in the interest of playing the game, I'll uh, I'll, I'll say uh, it's not underrated, but it depends on which company within the ASX 200. One of the reasons I'll say not underrated is because you've got a huge savings pool in Australia, a lot of which is mandated to invest only in ASX 200 companies. So you've already had a lot of money chasing those companies. So you just question if the valuations across the board are going to be attractive, not to say you can't find good opportunities within it. So, Paul, uh, you mentioned tech there. So, overrated or underrated, the NASDAQ 100? Uh, also difficult because it, it depends which companies within there. And in this case, a lot of it depends on what happens with the regulators and uh, if they have a crack at breaking up some of the really big names. So, overall, though, long-term, big tech's going to keep rolling on. So, uh, underrated. 
Keeping on the tech theme, I guess, overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Overrated. Uh, <laughs> that, that one's not hard. Basically, it, it's terribly expensive and environmentally unfriendly to produce. And as far as I can see, they haven't got a solution that can't be better served by other products and opportunities. That's not to say that blockchain technology won't be huge. I'm just not a big fan of uh, Bitcoin. So coming back to Australia and one of Australians in favorite investment options is property. So overrated or underrated Australian property? Overrated. Just think about it this way on the balance of probabilities, are interest rates going to go further down to provide a boost? Highly unlikely. There's really nowhere to go from here. If you look across historic levels of valuations to income, look worldwide on similar measures, there's just not a lot to suggest that you can get uh, lots of upside from here, but there's plenty to suggest that there could be flat or or declines over time. So probability weighted, weighted, it's overrated. Interesting. Overrated or underrated unicorns? This one very much depends on which unicorn and who's behind it. Uh, if you've got someone who's just been following their money and pumping up the valuation without other third parties, then chances are overrated. But if it's a, uh, a fast growth company that's got good analyzable metrics that are repeatable and a huge market, then under. We're recording this in December uh, 2019 and it's a bad time for unicorns at the moment with some big stories not doing too well. But who knows, 2020 might turn it around. Overrated or underrated, Silicon Valley as a whole? Silicon Valley as a whole. So the inputs to this decision would be uh, they historically have produced a lot of innovative companies and they've produced companies that can grow very, very big. On the flip side, there's no doubt in my mind there's a lot of herd mentality there. So overall, I'm going to say overrated. Now, Paul, you're in private equity and, and VC and we'll unpack that a bit later, but overrated or underrated SoftBank? Overrated. We work. I just never got it. Yeah. And I think if you look at their portfolio, there's probably going to be more of those. Interesting. And then last one, continuing on the tech theme, we've had our wax stocks, the four big, four hot tech stocks in Australia. Overrated or underrated those four stocks? <sighs> that one's slightly more difficult because quality companies, but uh, valuations are pretty high. So uh, in the long term, underrated. In the short term, potentially overrated. Awesome. So I think it's pretty clear that your area of expertise lies in in the tech space and and we'll unpack that very shortly. But You, you didn't like what I said about property? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I loved what you said about property. <laughs> he didn't like what you said about Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, that is not true. <laughs> we mentioned there in, in your opening bio that you are on the board for the Rajasthan Royals. So we'd love to just get the story behind that, how that came to be. And I guess, uh, you know, what are some of the awesome experiences I imagine that you've, you've had with them before we jump into your, your background? Uh, sure. Well, I'll try and keep it as short as I can with the Royals. Uh, I was working with Lachlan Murdoch at the time. We were looking for some investment exposures in India and uh, you know, huge population, big English-speaking population. The Rajasthan Royals was particularly attractive because there was an IPL league starting and the Indian team had won the T20 World Cup. And so there was a survey saying 80% of Indians favored T20 as their favorite form of cricket. More than 80% of world cricket revenue is coming through India. So massive addressable market. That's basically where we always tend to start on our investments. And it was a brand new opportunity that was being underwritten by a 10-year broadcast deal from Sony. So it looked like one of those things where, look, even if it doesn't go as you expect, the downside should be small, but the upside could be huge. 
Fast forward to today, last year the Rajasthan Royals made more profit than every Australian sporting team combined. Wow. (laughs) Uh, And that was off the back of a pretty small initial investment. I can't give the exact details, but suffice to say it's it's been a nice winner. Just uh, along the journey though, many, many many challenges. The first season, we we appointed Shane Warne captain coach. We won the league. I was there in Mumbai for the final. And like so many Indian things, it's such a dichotomy. We arrived at the ground by chopper and then sat on wooden benches with a bottle of water, (laughs) which is the the highest hospitality they had. And so we're we're a largely Western ownership group. And we said, ah, here's an opportunity in corporate hospitality. So before the next season, we we had an artist draw a picture of what Western style corporate hospitality would look like. And we pre-sold the whole season worth of tickets at a thousand US dollars per head per match. So it was going to be a success before we'd done anything except draw a picture. Now the Indian cricket board heard how it was going and they showed up and said, Rajasthan Royals, we're going to take over your corporate hospitality revenue stream from now on. And we said, well, you can't do that. Our contract says that's our revenue stream. And they said, yeah, sure. But here's another contract that we, the Indian cricket board have with the owner of the ground and it says, we, the Indian Cricket Board, determine where the scoreboard goes. So we're going to put it in front of your corporate hospitality and no one will oh. see the match. Oh, <laughs> uh, and so eventually uh, we negotiated that they got 25% of the revenue from that stream and uh, that's that's doing business in India. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's a crazy story. Oh, there's about 100 of those. It's been challenging, but fun. So before we get into more of the stories, which I'm excited to get into, we like to go back to people's first investments. We think it normally there's normally a good story there and there's normally some good lessons to unpack. So can you tell us a story of your first investment? Oh, I can. Look, it's not that exciting. It was in uh, it was in Germany. It was a uh, cleaning and catering company, and I was investing alongside some some smart German guys, and that's that's essentially what I was doing in those days. Rather than lead deals, I spent my first four years co-investing alongside much more experienced people, so that I could pick up a lot of their IP. Essentially, we had a fairly comprehensive plan to execute for for growth and uh, to drive profit. But six months in, we got a uh, an offer from uh, a much larger competitor that we could double our money, so we took it. And so, you know, le- lessons are, first of all, acquisitions are usually determined, the timing by the buyer, not the seller. And the second was, it always helps to have multiple exit pathways. So even if you think you're headed towards an IPO, we always like to see that there's at least three logical acquirers that might just take you out at a premium along the way. And so that was uh, that was part of the experience back in back in the 90s. So Paul, I'm assuming that was uh, a private investment, not on, on the market? Correct, it was. And so this is where your area of expertise lies at the moment. I would say it is probably one of the more sexier areas of yes. investment that, <laughs> that everyone sort of dreams of being in at some point in their life. You studied a bachelor of business and then spent some time at Harvard studying private equity leadership. What was it about that space, equity venture capital, that was appealing to you and and how have you uh, sort of trodden your path to, to where you are today? Sure. So straight out of university, I spent three years working with Ernst & Young in Brisbane. And I was very fortunate that very early on, I got into their corporate finance group. So that meant doing a lot of financial modeling, forecast, valuation work, preparing companies for IPO, raising venture capital, and advising, as it was then, basically Queensland companies getting taken over. And that that was the spark of the interest for me. I just thought, ah, oh, it wouldn't it be great if we had more venture capital funding available and I could be helping invest in these companies, grow them up rather than just uh, selling them out to takeovers when they get to a certain size. 
And as you just suggested, I found it to be the most interesting, exciting area of finance and investing, partly because you get a chance to be pretty involved and make a difference. Uh, You form pretty tight relationships with all of the, the management teams that you're working with. And probably biggest of all, the returns, if you get it right, can be just fantastic. Mm -hmm. For those that have just joined the show, can you explain the difference between private equity and, say, venture capital? Sure. So fundamentally, uh, venture capital returns are primarily driven by growth. You usually are taking a minority position, so not having control, just working with usually the founders and other investors in most situations. And you tend to not be taking on debt because you're at a stage of development where there's still a pretty high level of risk for, of execution. And so even if you could get debt, it may not be the smartest move for the particular company. So that's VC. I contrast that with private equity. In most types of private equity, we'll focus on control investing. By dollars, if you look around the world, that, that's what most of it does. It's not to say there's not minority investing, but you tend to have control. And even if you don't have control, you usually have a very structured investment with very clear contractual rights. The companies will usually use a significant level of debt and you are not necessarily depending on growth for the returns. You can get it by restructuring, taking out costs, just investing at a certain multiple and then selling it another. And and so it, it's, it's quite different drivers really that are generating the returns for PE versus venture capital. So Paul, private equity is obviously, it's different to public market investing. And I think probably the last sort of 10 years, it's probably been the sort of sexy style of investing. A lot of money's gone towards there. And you, you've you obviously built your career in private equity in that in that time. So can you tell us a bit about your journey from, you know, studying private equity at Harvard to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So really the first step was uh, when I uh, finished my qualification as a chartered accountant with Ernst & Young, I knew just enough to be dangerous. Uh, <laughs> I'd already made up my mind with a pretty big fire in the belly at that point that I, I wanted to do venture capital and private equity long term. It, it was a very nascent industry in Australia in those days. And I just thought, oh, this is going to take a long time. Best I jump on a plane to either the US or the UK, where it was much more developed, much bigger pools of money, and uh, and consequently more advanced intellectual property around it. So I thought, well, if I can get over there, get a number of years of experience and then bring that back to Australia to drive the industry, that's going to give me an edge. And essentially, that's that's what I did. I, I uh, got a transfer with EY to London, but they knew that I was looking to jump into private equity straight away. I was fortunate that I got a position with a group called MetLife. Now, couple of reasons why I was fortunate. Met was huge. They were managing 600 billion US dollars at the time. And they they made a billion dollar allocation to European private equity and venture capital to be deployed by two of us. And so our strategy was, actually, we don't have the depth or breadth of experience and contacts here to be beating the locals. So let's use our advantage, which is size, and work with them. So we we chose six funds who we thought were leaders in various aspects of private equity and venture capital right across Europe, including Russia and Central and Eastern Europe. And we made fund commitments to those leaders on the basis that we wanted to see direct deal flow, that we didn't pay fee or profit share on, and we would cherry pick that direct deal flow. So from a returns perspective, it was nice. The the fund investments made 50% per annum over the four years I was doing it. The direct investments made 90% per annum. So it was a really great market uh, to be operating in. There was, there was lots of good returns to be had. But the really important thing for me was from day one, 
I got to see a variety of people's techniques. So I was harvesting the the best way to look at forecasts, the best financial modeling, the best valuation techniques, the best management equity techniques, lots and lots of these things. And basically every time I saw something that I thought was smart and useful, I would synthesize it into what I was building up as my own approach to private equity investing. And so uh, then in 2000, I came back to Australia, the first really decent sized pool of private equity capital was raised. $500 million was raised by Champ One. Mm -hmm. And I'd been back to go to a mate's wedding earlier in the year. I was proactive and I went around and I met every single VC and PE player that I could find. And pleasingly, there was a there was a great fit between Bill Ferris and Joe Skrinsky who were raising this fund. So they uh, they invited me back and I, I got home to Sydney two weeks before the Olympics. That was good timing. Also, B- Bill and Joe had actually lost most of their investing team, partly for good reasons. They'd made enough money that they went off to do their own thing primarily. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was great because not only was there an office available, but I was able to put in place my systems and processes and recruit a team with a pretty much blank uh, whiteboard to work from. That worked well. Some of the guys and girls I uh, recruited are still there today. Johnny Haddock, uh, the CEO of Champ, is one of them. Uh, G'day, Johnny. And and we generated turns of over uh, 50% per annum for the six years that I was with Champ. But we were a generalist buyout fund. And uh, when I first came back to Australia, that was a great place to be. You had a nice wide open mandate. And the competition level was not high. In fact, it was particularly low. Really, the banks hadn't cottoned onto lending to buyouts at that stage. And that's a key ingredient. I spent the first six months, a lot of time with banks, really educating them on how they could participate in this wave that was coming. Contrast that with late 2006, when I resigned from Champ, and there were 80 lenders into the Australian buyout market. And so, Combine that with all the funding that had come into international private equity funds, more funding for Australian private equity funds, and you had this multiplier effect, more equity plus more debt. And the prices to me looked toppy and the debt structures that were going in, they're unstable. What was happening was the uh, the lenders would give you basically a holiday for 18 months where you weren't going to trip any covenants, after which time they probably moved on to another position in the bank. But after that time, unless you were really knocking it out of the park, there was a big chance you were going to trip covenants and say there was going to be all this carnage in the sector was my thesis. And so I thought, well, we, we had uh, profit share deal by deal at Champ. I'd been fortunate enough to get a degree of financial freedom from that. So deals like Ostar Pay Television, I led and we took EBITDA from zero to 120 mil in 18 months, wow. turned, turned 65 million into 600 million and realized that. And so we, we all took our share of, uh, of deals like that and so I just thought, well, time for a, a break. I had a 12-month non-compete. And so uh, I, I resigned from Champ thinking I'd probably do a distressed debt fund. And uh, I went and spent that year of 2007 in, in France while the Rugby World Cup was on, got married, and it was good fun. Uh, <laughs> Living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> there's a little, little bit of red wine and, uh, and cheese that year and travel. Uh, but during that northern summer, Lachlan Murdoch reached out. He had left news. He was serving out his own two-year non-compete and had formed Deliria, his personal investment vehicle, and was looking to hook up with some deal professionals to execute on some of his strategies in media and technology. So 
over a couple of bottles of wine, I agreed to join Lachlan and my non-compete ran out the day of the Rugby World Cup final, which is also the day that my lease in my house in Provence ran out. And so the next day I was on a plane home and Lachlan and I, well, I worked with Lachlan for about two and a half years. You mentioned the Rajasthan Royals. We got control of DMG Radio, which is the National Nova Network and what's now Smooth FM. That's been highly successful for, for Lachlan. But you know, Lachlan was really a media guy at heart and wanted to do uh, free-to-air TV next, but particularly Channel 10. I didn't share his views on that, and I really saw a lot of potential in the tech pipeline that we had generated, but we weren't really executing on. And so that was when I split from Lachlan and I took the, the tech pipeline with me. David Kirk and I raised Bailador. So Bailador is actually a listed company on the ASX. So any of our listeners who are interested in I guess uh, getting a piece of Paul Wilson, they can do that through. <laughs> they can do that through the the ASX. The ticker is BTI. So, can you tell us, Paul, about your I guess process in Bailador and through Lachlan as well that you go through to actually find your investment companies? It's a, a massive sort of world out there. Where do you start? Sure, H- happy to address that. I will just make one comment first on Bailador being public. That's a very deliberate long-term move by David and myself. Usually for investors to get exposure to the expansion stage of technology, you're making a a 10-year commitment to a blind pool where you can't see what any of the actual portfolio is going to be. And typically you'll need at least a million dollars that you can lock up for that 10-year period. Now, that just closes off the category to a huge amount of investors, right right through to some of institutions, family offices, high net worth. By having Bailador as a listed vehicle, we follow a very traditional investment approach, which I'll touch on in a second, for building and maintaining the portfolio and realizing value out of it. We have 10 companies, but you can see which 10 companies we have. You can see the valuations that we hold them at, and you can top up or realize your investment at any time. And that's unique. You know, for a lot of people who are interested in this space, it's a great way to get exposure, but maintain that flexibility and you can pull your cash out whenever you want. Yeah, it's a great way to get exposure. Something that as retail investors, getting access to this market is very tough. Before you go into your investment sort of process, can you just give us a quick rundown on what Bailador specialize in and sort of what stage of the company that you're looking for? Sure. We specialize in information technology industry. So I'll just make some distinctions of what we don't do. We don't do uh, biotech, medical devices, pharma. So it's, it's all IT. Within that category, we're most interested in software as a service business models and marketplace models. The reason is that they can scale and address global markets very efficiently. And I'll I'll dig into this a little bit more shortly. In terms of size and stage, a rule of thumb for us is revenue of at least $5 million. Now, the reason we picked that is because at that stage, the business usually has a pretty proven product market fit. That's the first element to really getting any of these businesses going. Make sure there's demand for your product, that the pricing works, and that you can sell it. By the time they've gotten to this $5 million of revenue, particularly if they're on a subscription business model, they usually have hundreds, maybe thousands of customers, very predictable revenue streams. They almost always have already started to address international markets. It's not good enough just to be a local champion. When you're in software, you have to have world best technology or world best product market fit. Usually, so the technology is proven, product market fit is proven, management have proven themselves able to scale it to that point. 
And a lot of what they're coming to David and myself for is the the capital to go to the next stage. They're not taking any money off the table. It's quite the contrary. They can they come to us excited because they say, we've cracked the code. We know that we can go faster if we can just have a little bit of capital to invest to drive that. And the other thing they're looking for from us is some experienced heads who've been on that journey with a number of companies, help them grow globally, help them understand is it okay to be burning cash or not and why? Which country should we focus on or go global all at once? Which product area should we be investing in? All of those elements of the journey, we've had quite a bit of experience in. Uh, every company is different, but you can you can draw on those past experiences. So that a company typically looks like this. It's been founded two to six years ago. It's through $5 million or preferably $10 million of revenue. It's usually run by the founder or founding group. They're looking for probably around $5 million to grow. They're already addressing international markets. They've got hundreds of customers and unit economics that really makes sense to look like it can grow on a very efficient basis. So I guess the thing that naturally comes out of that is deal flow must be so important because you don't find those companies every day that are ripe for investing. So what's your process in sourcing deals? Are you just looking at Australia? Or are you looking everywhere? We're looking at businesses that were born in Australia or New Zealand. Now, three of our companies are actually headquartered in the US now, a couple in San Francisco, one in New York for various reasons. But the reason we focus on businesses born here is we have a much better chance to diligence those opportunities, get to know the people involved. And I'll give you an example. We're unlikely to make an investment in a group unless we've made at least 20 connections with people that know them, be it customers or competitors or suppliers. And we'll often get to know the founders over a period of months. We'll often work up a a business plan together, typically a three-year business plan. And it's not because we're all going to stick religiously to that business plan. It means that there is a plan and we're capable of working together to figure out what that should be, debating priorities. And that's a big help for us getting to understand if we're going to be able to work well together because we're typically in these investments for three, five, seven years. It's 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 more like a relationship than uh, than something you can just buy on the stock exchange because you like the look of it and sell it in a couple of months' time. So we we take that uh, sort of risk of the long term hold, but then as a public company, we let our investors come in and out depending on how much they want to back us. To answer your specific question about how we get deal flow. A lot of it has to do with the fact that both David and I have been in the market for a long period of time. So the fact is we just get people coming to us every day. Now, on top of that, we have a team who's going out and they're meeting people. They are going to conferences. They're understanding who the uh, who the performers are that are, are coming up. Now, one of the advantages of operating at a stage where you're saying we, we want at least $5 million of revenue is... Once they start getting a million, two million dollars of revenue, they start coming onto our radar screen, and we can uh, we can get to know them. They can get to know us, figure out if there's a likely good fit there, see if they do what they say they're going to do, or if they don't, was there good reasons for that pivot, and how did they handle it? Uh, and you can learn as much from that as anything. So you know, I don't want to be complacent, and I don't think we see every single deal, but I like to think we see most. Uh, we also have a sort of a, a quiet army of supporters, if I could put it that way. We've got more than 1,500 shareholders. A lot of those people are high net worths that they themselves see a lot of deal flow and they're interested in the space. A lot of them go along to lots of pitching events and conferences and, and will just naturally be approached. And they mostly understand that David and I and the team see hundreds of deals a year 
and we're best placed to be able to compare the the new deal opportunity to what's already out there you know, based on particular industry segment, the type of valuation, the growth rates you should expect, what are the key metrics in that niche. And so by specialising in this particular area within Australia at expansion stage only, we think we give ourselves the best chance to see a lot of the deal flow and for people to be aware that that's what we do and come to us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I know of a podcast that is looking for a bit of cash to go global, so uh, <laughs> it could help your deal flow. No, no problem. I should mention, I, I pretty much get a deal out of every uh, Uber I get in as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, it's very similar. You know, we've, we've had a couple of interviews recently in the small cap space and the way that you explain how you, you find companies and, and think about the investing process similar to how some fund managers go about their business in small caps. And one of the big questions that we always get from our listeners is the risk level that you're taking around small caps relative to the large end of town. How do you go about sort of managing the risk that you take going into these investments? And also, how do you know is a good time to exit if it's if it's on a good run? Sure. So two parts to that question. First of all, on managing the risk, a lot of it has to do with the work you do before you cut the check. So I've just described some of that. It usually is at least six months of getting to know the business, the founders, the competitors, the customers, the dynamics, applying all the same Porter's Five Forces analysis that I used to in much larger companies, but on a smaller scale, mm. seeing how they're traveling, looking at the momentum. Not, nothing is risk-free, but the level of diligence and involvement we have and the access we have to information is frankly just so far superior to what you'll get from a public company. So you, you get to really be inside the tent as opposed to trying to you know infer what's meant by public statements and things like that so that's that's one key element uh, another key element simply has to do with the stage at which we're investing and so you know at the very early startup stage what i'm talking about here is pre-revenue or you know one two million dollars of revenue but loss making frankly the the mortality rates there are very very high and so one of the reasons we invest where we do is because the companies are coming into a stage where actually they know they've got something and it's about executing as efficiently as possible. And, and that's where our skill sets lie. And so we really try and bring it down to that. And then one of the key elements we look for in founders is not just what their skill sets are and the team that exists, but how good are they at their self-awareness of where the holes in the team might be and, uh, and their willingness to bring on A-graders uh, to solve that. And there's a famous quote goes along the lines of you, you should hire people smarter than yourself. And, uh, and we totally buy into that. Just get the best people you can on that journey with you. And, uh, and if they have a willingness to do that, then that's, that's a very, very good start. And we've, uh, we found that to be very effective. So that's dealing with the part of the question about risk. Second part of the question, I think, was about how do you know when to sell? How do you know when to realize there's no right and wrong here? And, and frankly, a lot of it comes down to what's the valuation uh, that you can exit at uh, versus the prospects for the company and what are the risks? Uh, because it doesn't matter who you are, there, there are always going to be risks on performance 
Uh, and so you've just got to have a balance for that. I think one of the um, comments I made earlier was learning from uh, my very first investment. A lot of the deals happen when the buyer's ready, not the seller. And so you you might be partway through your journey where you think you can get to a certain stage by taking certain actions and, and, a, and an offer lobs in. You've got to then weigh that up against, well, if we don't take this what other options are we going to have? When are they likely to come? Do we, are we likely to need any, need any more cash? But also, what will be the competitive behaviour of that buyer? Because if they're motivated enough to come and want to write you a check, it's because they want to get into this space. And and most buyers will have a an analysis of buy versus build. And so if they can't buy you, they'll probably build. And so you've got to take all those things into account. So. If we can take it from the abstract that we've been talking about and we get to the specific, you have a number of companies that you're holding at the moment. So maybe if we pick one that you think is a good example, can you just tell us a story of that investment, how you met them, what the process of valuing them was and sort of what's happened since you invested? Sure. My favorite bit. Uh, (laughs) So I'll talk about SiteMinder partly because it's the largest holding in our portfolio. It was also one of the earliest. So first of all, SiteMinder is a software as a service business model, which I alluded to earlier. And that means just as by way of background, means you essentially build a software platform once you continue to incrementally add to it, but it's essentially the same platform. You might add features and functionality, but then you sell access to that platform to thousands of subscribers on a monthly or an annual basis at high gross margins, usually more than 80%, such that each new customer is bringing on revenue, most of which drops to the bottom line and just stays there until you lose them, which hopefully is you know sort of 10 years away. So it's a great model and, and you can start to understand if you're building that model once, you can sell it globally. And so if you peak uh, an industry space where you have the best tech and the best product market fit, it can become massive. So that, that's a good cue to start talking about SiteMinder because that's exactly what's happened. So SiteMinder, at the time Baylor invested in April 2012, had uh, really one core product. It's called a channel manager for the hotel industry. So what does it do? It basically allows hotels to sell their room inventory through online channels anywhere in the world. So there are about 800,000 hotels worldwide. It's a huge addressable market. About 50% of global hotel bookings are made online now. Some markets are higher, some markets are lower, and it depends on the size of the hotel. But let's say online is important and growing. So if you're a hotel and you have, say, 100 rooms that you want to sell, the best way to maximize the the revenue generation from those 100 rooms is to get them out to as broad an audience as possible, efficiently as possible. If you're doing that manually, you might be able to say, all right, I can access booking.com and Expedia. And if you've got 100 rooms, you might say, I'm going to give 30 to booking.com, 20 to Expedia for any given night, keep 50. And then every day I work the phones and the emails and I figure out what they're selling and I move it around. That's terribly inefficient. You, you're going to over-allocate sometimes. You're going to under-allocate, leave inventory not sold. It's basically a full-time job to, to move inventory around, even, even amongst two online players. They're typically called online travel agents or OTAs. Now, there's not just two OTAs. There are hundreds of online channels around the world, and increasingly, people like TripAdvisor, Airbnb are participating, Trip out of China. You've, uh, you've seen them, Metas like Trivago and many others, Kayak. And so if you're a hotel, your motivation is, well, how do I get my rooms sold? The answer is the SiteMinder Channel Manager. It's effectively an, an online 
inventory warehouse of hotel rooms. That hotel takes their 100 rooms, loads them into the channel manager, and SiteMinder is connected real time to every significant online distribution channel worldwide. And so, bang, you immediately have much greater distribution if you're the hotel. The pricing works out to be about one room per month. And so, if you've got 100 rooms, that's 3,000 rooms in a month. If you sell one more out of that 3,000 because of the channel manager, you paid for it. On top of that, it's cream. So, it's highly compelling for hotels. Plus, you no longer need that full-time person who's moving the inventory around. They can be redeployed in more productive manner. So, that's the initial problem that SiteMiner solved, the initial product market fit. SiteMiner is now the, the world leader in its space. They have more than 35,000 hotels around the world subscribing on a monthly basis. So it's this beautiful revenue model of they come on, it's predictable revenue. I can say since we invested in April 2012, every single quarter, the number of hotels subscribing has gone up. Every single quarter, the revenue per hotel has gone up. And so the multiplier effect is you can just imagine what the chart looks like every single quarter from April 2012 to now. It just goes up and up and up. So we, we invested it when they had revenue of $5 million, publicly stated earlier this year that they've gone through $100 million in uh, annual recurring revenue. We invested at a, uh, a valuation of uh, 25 mil and the business is now valued at more than $1 billion on uh, just about any wow. measure you, you choose. So it's been, a, uh, it's been a success and it's got a long, long way to go because SiteMind is more than triple the size of its nearest competitor by any measure at 35,000 hotels and the number of connections we have with OTAs and, and hotels and, and property management systems, not to get too far into the weeds, but the addressable market's 800,000. So it's a huge greenfield opportunity still ahead of us. And of course, SiteMind hasn't sat still on their tech. They've added features, functionality. Uh, there's now seven different revenue streams within that platform. They processed 38 billion US dollars of reservations through the platform last year. Uh, SiteMind has introduced a payments product to start to monetize the transactions as well as the SaaS revenue. They've also recently opened up their platform to third-party software applications. So there is uh, there's new tech being developed for the travel industry all the time. But the biggest challenge of all is how do you get it distributed to those hotels that might want to buy it? Well, now for the right uh, software, it can go onto the SiteMiner platform. The hotels can buy it by just clicking a, a box basically on the SiteMiner platform. SiteMiner gets to take a, a clip of the revenue and also track the data so that you can see what's happening with a high level of granularity in the industry. So it's just a, a, a tremendous business. The team there has done a fantastic job. Mike Ford and Mike Rogers were the two founders. They were... 40 years old when we invested. They'd gotten to basically a leadership position in Australia. Just as I alluded to earlier, we got to know them over a, about six-month period. They were approached by uh, a bunch of uh, US VCs, most of whom wanted the guys to move to San Francisco and run the business in a certain way. David Kirk and I spent a lot of time with Mike Ford in particular, in, including a couple of steaks and bottles of red wine, working out <laughs> you know, what Mike and Mike really wanted out of this and what the journey might look like. And we spoke to dozens and dozens of people that knew the guys and, and we did worldwide customer references. And it was just so strong, people talking about the, the product and the guys themselves. So we, um, we worked up a three-year business plan. We invested. The money was used to grow the sales team in uh, London, who was addressing the UK and Western Europe. We opened a Bangkok office, particularly to address Indonesia and, and Thailand. And that was really the, the focus of the initial money. We put in a, uh, a heavier hitting CFO. And we took the business intentionally into losses. After 18 months, it came back into profit. I was generating cash, was now growing at 80% per annum, whereas it was growing about 25% without that cash injection. 
it had already really gotten itself pretty much to the leadership position in Europe and, and Asia, and we hadn't yet looked to the US. So we, we did that together. We made the decision that if we're going to go to the US, we wanted to go hard to get the market leadership position there. The best way to do that, we thought, would be to take on a little more funding. I should say the guys had only used 1.8 mil of our 5 mil to get it to that point wow. as well. Wow. So, you know, it was it was working well. The unit economics all worked. And uh, we said, right, now's the time to go harder. And so we, Baylor identified a Silicon Valley-based investor called Technology Crossover Ventures, TCV. They were travel experts. They'd been the main backer behind Expedia. They had a lot of experience in software as a service. We really liked their character. And so we negotiated a deal without really distracting management at all that was at a valuation four times our entry price. This is 18 months after entry. Baylor could have taken any or all of our money off the table, but we chose to take none. We said, this is not a four times money investment. This is a 20, 30, 40 times money investment if we if we can keep growing it. And it was one of the things that led to us saying, well, rather than sell, how can we get some more capital but still give the people that backed us early exposure? And that's what led to us uh, rolling that investment onto the ASX. So from there, SiteMiner got the US leadership position. They've grown further and further ahead in terms of the world leadership and couldn't be happier. Well, so when are SiteMiner going public? That's uh, uh, lots of investment bankers around the country <laughs> would hope it's very soon. The reality is SiteMiner is absolutely ready to be public. Run a filter that says Australia uh, software as a service business that's more than $100 million of revenue, more than 25% growth rate, more than 70% gross margin. You'll come up with three ASX listed companies, WiseTech, Altium and Zero, and SiteMiner fits into that. So they're already writing that premium quartile up there. The reality is Hotminder has plenty of access to private capital. So, you know, there's a question about what public markets do for you. I, I think it will IPO sometime in the next couple of years. Wow. So awesome success story. As an investor in Bailador, if our listeners are looking to get in, how would they, I guess, profit themselves from that? Do you pay a special a deal like that? Do you pay a special dividend if you sell out or how would one get rewarded? So basically two different ways you get rewarded. One is increasing the share price. The other is dividends. Yeah. And so on, let's use that specific example. Let's say SiteMinder IPOs, we might take a portion of our position off the table. I could use an example of Straker that we IPO'd last year. We took 10% of our position off the table, but SiteMinder is much larger. So that would likely lead to us paying a fully frank dividend. Yeah. Uh, so at the moment, we've got franking credits that would equate to a $6 million dividend. I'm not promising anything, but that would be the obvious number. So if you bought Bailador shares, you'll get a cash dividend that's already had the tax paid on it at a, at a corporate level of tax. And so for a lot of people, it's then tax-free or, or reduced. So that's mm -hmm. highly efficient. The other thing that we do is when there's a third-party transaction in one of our companies, we will revalue our position to match that third-party transaction. So let's say we took on some capital with SiteBinder and, and it was a, at a higher valuation than we're carrying it. We'll put our asset valuation up and then the share price usually follows that up. And then investors can choose to sell some or, or keep or buy more if they think uh, it hasn't gone up enough. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Do you find at times that the value that you're seeing companies at, it's very different to the value that the market's seeing companies at? And there's some inefficiencies in the fact that you are a public company and the market revalues you every second and your portfolio isn't? Yeah, there's, there's definitely some inefficiencies to be honest with you, that's part of what creates the opportunity for yeah. investors right now. <laughs> and so start, starting with the fact base, we've got these 10 companies, we, we revalue them when there's third-party transactions. If there hasn't been one for 12 months, 
we'll look at the value, but we tend to be conservative. The portfolio we have at the moment, since we invested, revenue is more than tripled, but we've only put the valuation up double. So that includes the third-party transaction as well as internal. So it tells you, actually, these companies are growing bigger. Their strategic position is usually improving, yet we're not following the full growth rate up. And so the reason we do that is because we, we want to continually surprise on the upside when there are transactions and cash realizations. We've now had 19 third-party transactions in the portfolio. 19 out of 19 have been at or above our carrying value at an average 88% uplift. We've had four cash realizations, an average uh, return of 40% per annum. So the data is starting to build. But the reality is we're the only listed company in Australia that looks like us, that focuses on expansion, stage tech. And the natural tendency of most Australian investors is to say, oh, it's a listed investment company, therefore it should trade at a discount. Oh, it's private, maybe the discount should be even more. I get that sort of initial level of thinking, but if you then look at our track record and look at the basis of valuation, the more times we can outperform, and I think if we can show a couple of big cash realizations, well above the carrying value, I suspect we do that one or two more times and the penny will drop because there are a number of companies that do look like us in the UK and most of the time they trade at premiums to their asset value. So I think today our discount to uh, asset value is something like 18%. If you believe that over time that'll narrow, there's an opportunity. But it's more, it's more than a one-trick pony. The underlying portfolio of companies that we have last year generated $232 million at a growth rate of 30%. We expect that rough growth rate to continue. And so that's what's providing the underlying engine to the asset value. And then as we transact and sell, we expect to produce some really nice premium returns. Mm. So Paul, before we get, uh, we're getting closer to our, our wrap up, but I want to just touch on the, the industry more broadly in Australia. Do you sort of see, what do you think are going to be some sort of hot trends in the IT sector sort of coming in, in 2020, putting you on the spot here? Or what's <laughs> exciting you? <laughs> uh, well, for, first of all, I, I think the mega trend is that we'll continue to see a separation of Chinese technology from Western technology. So many tech companies have had a crack at China and basically have been burnt and had IP issues. And, uh, you know, you've seen the Chinese government mandating that all Western tech basically has to be out of the government offices in the next three years. So, you know, I think we're going to have side-by-side ecosystems. And so, you know, just thinking about how you play that will be sort of a, a mega trend. If I bring it back to Australia, one thing that we're already seeing is a lot of companies thinking globally much earlier. So when David and I started doing this as Bailador, you had some local champions and they said, oh, we could get to $100 million, you know, wouldn't that be great? But most people aren't thinking that way anymore. They're saying, actually, here's the size of the global niche. Here's the stepping stones that we think we can use to go after it. And, uh, and, and so I, I would like to think that that continues and Australian tech companies can go on and become world leaders, even if it's in niches that you might not have thought much about. A lot of what we invest in at at Baylor is not consumer-facing brands. And so most people look at our portfolio and go, oh, I I don't know those names. Actually, that suits us just fine. They're business to business, and it's actually a more stable, predictable revenue stream. But as I mentioned, you can go global. So that's that's definitely a trend. Mm. One thing in your SiteMinder story that piqued my interest was they were approached by a whole bunch of US VCs, and then uh, they started speaking to you. And I imagine there were other Australian VCs sniffing around as well. And as more and more money seems to go into the sector, what's that competition like between VCs and private equity players and sort of how do you navigate that with the founders? 
Sure. At a high level, that's absolutely correct. What happens as more money comes into the sector, there tends to be a much higher degree of specialization. So whilst on the surface, Baylittle is competing against you know, Airtree and SquarePeg and, and One Ventures and, and a number of other names, we actually don't go head to head that often. And if we do, we'll tend to team up. So you know, Airtree's got a much more consumer and retail focus than we do, much more recognizable names. SquarePeg and Blackbird will go earlier than us. One Ventures has done a lot more medical historically, albeit they're sort of now moving much closer towards what Baylor does. So we've all got our areas of specialization. And, you know, it's like it's like friendships. It's like relationships. Not everyone gets on with everyone. And so you do find just better fits. And remember, the founders aren't taking money off the table when we invest. And so whilst the valuation counts, it's not the be-all and end-all. What they're really interested in is what's the approach that's going to create the biggest pie over the next five or 10 years. And, and so that's really the battleground, if I could put it that way. We always have three questions that we like to finish our interview with, but I'm sure there are a lot of people sitting here listening, going, God, it'd be awesome to get into private equity and you know pursue that career path. If there was one sort of skill or characteristic that you think is really important in the industry that one could sort of go after, what would you sort of suggest that be? Oh boy, one <laughs> skill. Uh, look, Personally, for me, it helped a lot to set my sights on a particular goal and just be tenacious sticking at it. And if I could say something to my young, younger self, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. Well, that was the final three of our last questions. <laughs> <laughs> so you jumped we're, the gun with We're going to have to think of another one there. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, uh, we'll go number two then. If, uh, are there any must-read books that you would recommend, investing or otherwise? Sure. The best book I read this year was Sapiens. And it's pretty high profile now. A lot of people know about it, but I loved it because every time I read it, I felt smarter and just learned so much, but in a way that was really easily absorbable. So I definitely recommend that. On a business front, there's a book called The Founder's Mentality that uh, a number of our companies are having their whole teams read and they found it great just to, to get an alignment of, of focus and, and emotional focus as much as anything else. Yeah, nice. We'll include those books in the show notes if people want to read them. Our second question that we always like to ask to wrap up, what's your go-to source for investing information? I don't really have a single go-to and, and part of that's on purpose. I, I like to get my information from lots of lots of different sources so you can get different points of view. So uh, there's, there's really not one I'd call out, to be honest. And the final one you've already answered, which was uh, advice to your younger self, was which was it's a marathon, <laughs> not a sprint, which I, which I really, really like and relate to. Maybe advice to the younger self, not everything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ask them, we'll get that story next time. <laughs> so Bryce has got one more question that he's written down here. I don't know if you're planning on asking it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, look, uh, Ren and I actually have a, a group of mates who love to chat about starting, you know, small companies and startups and whatnot and through your portfolio and at the names of a lot of the companies. And why do a lot of tech companies these days finish with R or Lee? I think <laughs> what's going on there? Is this, yeah, is this, who, who comes up with all these yeah, names? Surely that's part of your mandate. It, to, it, uh, it might have something to do with predictive texting and getting lazy. <laughs> uh, I, I honestly can't tell you. I don't. Some of the names are crazy. 
weird trend that's going on yeah, there, yeah. but uh, watch this space. And now like .io and stuff is coming along uh, and... Yeah, well, it used to be it had to start with an I or an E, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Goes towards the valuation, I'm sure. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, Paul, thank you so much for uh, your time today. Really appreciate you coming on the show. As I said at the start, it's a space that we haven't really had much exposure to, so super interesting conversation. And if anyone is interested in Bailador, what would be the best way of getting involved with you guys? Oh, look, the, the easiest thing to do is just go to our website, bailador.com.au, and you'll find a heap of information there on the portfolio, on our news. We, we publish every month to the ASX valuations and as well as portfolio news. And uh, anyone that can buy shares can can buy Bailador, BTI. Yeah, ticker BTI. So check them out. I think uh, certainly something that I'm going to be keeping a close eye on. So I appreciate your time and looking forward to what comes in 2020. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 